So I have a confession to make to every single one of you. I am a person who does not accept truth at face value. That's just the way it is. It, it's a trait that drives my family up the wall. It's a trait that drives my staff up the wall at times. Because if you come to me and you say, this is the absolute greatest product in the world, I may think, well, that's, that's wonderful for you, but you just said it's the greatest product in the world. You know, I would have to check it out myself before I would be able to believe you in that. That's just the way it is. And I think that that tendency in my life has been what's caused me to have two or three seasons in my spiritual walk, at least, in which I have struggled with things of faith where I've really had to dig in. And in, in my life, it's always been this kind of thing, is that really true? Is what you're saying really true? Can you prove it or validate it? And in this era of social media, the thought that someone might possibly base their facts on Facebook or some other medium like that, it just doesn't cut it in my mind. Oh, hey, Mike, where do you have to? Uh, just diagramming this accident with my State Farm Pocket Agent app. Hmm. You can also get a quote and pay your premium with this thing. I thought State Farm didn't have all those apps. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The, the internet. internet. Oh, look. Here comes my date. I met him on the internet. He's a French model. Uh, bonjour. Now, I, I'm guessing that there's some of you who, um, you, can, you can relate to that, right? You, you just don't th accept things at face value. Just because it says it's on the internet, you don't necessarily believe it to be true. Now, there's some of you, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, there's some of you that the way God has made you, it's like you just jump into something wholehearted. You, you, know, you don't have to have tons of evidence or belief. You just know this is true. And for you, that's just an amazing thing. But there's others of you that are similar to me in that, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, um, you, you have to have some evidence. You have to have some proof for you to be able to believe that. It's not that you don't want to believe it, right? It's just that you just can't accept something at face value. And I am thankful for a God that does not discount this genuine search for the truth. And so this year, our challenge has been to get to know Jesus Christ better through this whole entire year. Some of you are saying, this is the greatest thing I'm here, but there's some of you, a handful of you, who are thinking to yourself, well, you know, Doug, that's a great thing, but why, why do we want to get to know Jesus better? I mean, there's a lot of great teachers, there's a lot of great resources out there, there's a lot of great things that I can learn from, leadership-wise and parenting-wise, and, you know, there's so many other good things. Why, why Jesus Christ? I mean, yeah, he's a good guy. Jesus is a good teacher. He did some good things. But we're going to spend a whole year just getting to know Jesus and just studying the gospel of Luke. It's like, i got a ton of things to do, Doug. I've got a lot of other priorities. To spend a whole year doing that, why should we make that a priority? And for a handful of people, that's been in your mind. And so that's why we're in this particular series, which has as its goal helping you, those of you who are a little bit like me, who struggle with that, to find some valid reasons, some proof, some evidence to be able to say, okay, this is the one that I want to listen to. That's why the title of this series is, Why Listen to Jesus? 
Why should we spend time getting to know Jesus better? Why is that so important to us? And so, you know, our vision, our picture, our, you know, objective of 2021 is that this be a church that every single one of us, whether you're here in this building, whether you're at home, wherever you happen to be, that we're spending this year getting to know Jesus Christ better. I mean, my prayer, my heart's desire is that we would be people who would listen well to Jesus and then put into practice all of the things that he taught us from his words about loving our neighbor to his words about priorities, um, from his words that talk about you know, showing mercy to others to his words about loving our enemies, from his words about relationships, marriage, divorce, and parenting to his instructions about carrying his cross. I mean, in my mind, this is the year in which so many of us move from this kind of half-hearted, kind of in, kind of out following of Jesus to being full out followers of Jesus Christ. But that's difficult for some because, again, you're not certain about this Jesus person or you're not certain that he's telling the truth or that the lessons recorded about Jesus in the Gospels are really the things that Jesus said. And so that's why we're in this series. So last week, We looked at the fact that we can listen to Jesus, one, because God himself pointed to Jesus at his baptism, right? And he said, he's the one. This is the one you need to listen to. This is the one you need to pay attention to. And so today, as we turn to Luke chapter 4, and I want to invite you to turn your Bibles. Those of you online, turn there to Luke 4. Those of you here, as we turn to Luke 4, we find Jesus going to church, right? So you guys can be comfortable with that. Um, He actually is up on the stage. He's reading scripture. I don't know if they had stages in the synagogues back then, but he's up front, right? He's reading scripture there. But Jesus makes a, a statement that not only gives clarity to his mission on this earth, but he uses a specific phrase to be able to help us have confidence in his authority. And the phrase is simply this, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. So why listen to Jesus? The reason we listen to Jesus is because of today's key, that fulfilled prophecies validate Jesus' authority. Last week it was God pointing and saying, this is the one. Today, it's the fulfilled prophecies that we find in scripture. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. We're going to look at some other verses beyond that. But you listen here. Those of you who are online, please listen or read together as I read this, beginning in verse 14. Luke writes this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. 
So we talked last week, we looked at the baptism of Jesus and the events surrounding that. Then the Spirit, who had descended upon Jesus right at his baptism, the Spirit then leads Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days for the, for the biggest test of his whole life at that point. And so what we find here as we come to Luke chapter 4 is Jesus is now returned from this testing period there. And so Luke writes this beginning in verse 14. It says, Jesus returned. So he'd been in the wilderness in temptation. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. So now Galilee is a region, it would be more like um, Missouri or the Midwest. And so that's where Jesus finds himself spending a lot of time. And he says there he returned in the power of the Spirit. So this is pointing back to his baptism, the descending of the dove, or the form of the dove, but the descending of the Spirit. But this phrase, power of the Spirit, um, it would describe mighty works. So he's talking about him performing miracles, raising Um, casting out demons, healing people, as well as he's doing some teaching there. And so those two verses, 14 and 15, quite possibly cover a period of many months that we don't have or know about. And then it says, news about him spread through the whole countryside. So he's gone from obscurity to this massive popularity as a result of all this he's doing. And so these two verses just kind of give us a glimpse of a picture of what's going on. Everybody was praising him. But then verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. So what's going on here is Jesus is now in his hometown, so Nazareth. So here's kind of a map of that region and that particular area. you got the Sea of Galilee. There's Galilee. I mentioned that there. But there's Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. So he's going back home. And Nazareth is a pretty small town. So how many of you uh, grew up in a small town? Anybody in here grew up in a small town? Some of you did. Anybody online? Tell us the small town you grew up in. I know many of you grew up in towns way bigger than St. Louis. But if you grow up in a small town, you know a couple of things. Everybody knows you. Everybody knows your business, right? And when you come back home after you've been gone for a period of time, sometimes you can come back like this big celebrity, right? Or it's a little bit here like Jesus is coming back to a family reunion. You know, you got a big family, but you haven't been to the reunion for like 15 years, and so now you come back to the family reunion. It's like, You know, oh, you've grown so much. I can't believe I remember when you were this big. You know, all that stuff going on. So Jesus has come back to his hometown. And so it's the Sabbath day, and it's the synagogue. Now, the synagogue is the place in which God's people, probably 200 years or maybe a little bit more before Jesus came to this, back to this earth, so about two or 300 B.C., the synagogues began to form in the Jewish communities. And there was a lot of guidelines for who could have a synagogue. But on the Sabbath day, it would be a little bit like this, gather in a building, gather in a place, right? And so there's certain things going on. There's reading of the Torah, reading of the prophets. There's some instruction. There's prayers. There's the saying of the Shema, quoting together, those kind of things. And so that's the setting that we find Jesus in. So what goes on? A rabbi hands to Jesus a scroll, And Jesus takes that, why? And it's the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So starting verse 17. Unrolling it, 
Jesus found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. Now, what is happening here in this passage of Scripture is that as Jesus is reading here, he's reading from the Old Testament. He's reading from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 62, 1 and 2, but then he grabs this little piece from Isaiah 58, and he includes that in there. Now, this passage is very significant because this is a passage that is about the Messiah. Every Jew sitting there in the synagogue, every one of them knew Jesus is reading a passage about the Messiah, what the Messiah is going to do, the ministry of the Messiah. In other words, when the Messiah comes, because in their mind it's in the future, this is what he's going to do. Now before we get into Jesus' declaration, I want us to spend a little time on this, because this is a very significant passage. He He's really unpacking what's about to happen in his ministry, what he's going to be doing. And so, again, Isaiah's writing these words, starting in verse 18, right? It's Isaiah speaking or writing these words, but it's coming from the Spirit, right? Because he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. That's Isaiah writing those words. So it's being guided by God there. But what does he say? He is speaking of the divine arrival of a prophet. And what is he going to declare? He's going to declare good news. That's the message. Good news. But who is the good news for? And this is very unique because the, those listening to it, the good news comes to those who are poor. So imagine you're reading that and, and you're knowing that's who the Messiah is going to come for and you're one of those poor. It would be economically poor, but it's more than just economically poor. It's, it's those who are spiritually poor. In other words, those who know and understand, you know, I'm messed up. I can't do enough good things to be able to make my life right with God. And so he's saying, spirit speaking, to those who are poor and know that this future prophetic figure is proclaiming this good news. And what is he proclaiming there? He's proclaiming what? Setting freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. I mean, it is a message of great hope if you're in any of those categories. But then he adds this little piece there to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And again, his audience is all Jews, right? And those Jews know that what he's talking about there is the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was the release from debt, the release of prisoners. That was a God-ordained thing. In other words, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be the year of Jubilee. Everything is going to be starting over. There's one who will come and accomplish all of this. So that's what Jesus is reading. And then, what does Jesus say, verse 21? Today, this scripture, the one I just read, is being fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying to every person who's listening there, I want you to understand that what I just read, you know, what you just heard right now at this moment is taking place. In other words, Jesus was declaring to them, I am the Messiah. He was saying, it's being fulfilled now. I am the one. And so how do they respond to Jesus' declaration? Verse 22, 
all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. In other words, he didn't just say this and that was it. He would have been doing some other instruction there. But then they add this, isn't this Joseph's son? So it sounds like there's some um, kind of amazement with some skepticism in what they're saying. Is there fondness in their words or is there doubt in their words? I mean, there's some fondness there, right? Because, man, this, this, is, this is the guy we need to get to be our preacher. I mean, he is a good speaker. We like to listen to this guy, right? But then they say, isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, you're saying you're the Messiah. How can be, you be the Messiah? Because we know your dad. You know, we saw you when you skinned a knee. You know, I changed your diaper when you were a baby. Something like that. In other words, there was such a familiarity to them. But we don't really have much time to consider what are they really thinking because what does Jesus do? Jesus, it's like he goes after them now. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard you do, did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Serapath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So what's, what's Jesus talking about here? It, it seems a little bit confusing, right? Well, you've got to remember that Jesus can read the thoughts and the attitudes of the people who are present here. And he knows their skepticism in their mind. In other words, he knows they're thinking, oh, well, if you do a few miracles for us here, we'd believe you like you did back in Capernaum, Right? And he also reveals the rejection of their thoughts, that they're rejecting him and the things he's saying because, you know, no prophet is, you know, accepted in his own hometown. But the most difficult thing that what Jesus is declaring to them when he talks about Elijah and Elisha is this, that just like Israel turned their backs on God in that day, that's exactly what you're doing today. Just like they had doubt on God and refuse to follow and believe God like they did on Elijah and Elisha's day. That's exactly what you're doing today. He reveals their spiritual poverty. He's saying God saw such a lack of faith in Israel during these times. God chose to go outside of Israel to heal or to do miracles because there was no faith in Israel. Jesus angers them by pointing out how faithless this group of people was just like Israel was in the time of Elijah and Elisha, and in stating this, that God now, like he was then, but more so, is looking for faith outside of the Jewish nation. In other words, he's saying everything is about to change and about who can come in and be a part of God's kingdom. They don't really take very well to what Jesus declares to them. You know it's something that makes them really unhappy there. When you are told you're faithless and God is turning his back on you, verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd 
and he went on his way. It's like in the face of this hostility and faithlessness and real hatred of Jesus, God's plan never stops. It always succeeds. The sad part is, here he is walking away from a group of people that he was trying to reach. And there's never any other time that you learn of Jesus ever being back to Nazareth. Will we walk away because we're faithless? It's something that we have to wrestle with here. Are we going to be willing to recognize his authority and claim as Messiah and Savior and Lord over our life? Or will we, like these people, get angry at him? Well, it really all depends upon how we answer this question. Why listen to Jesus? And in the midst of what Jesus is doing, Jesus reveals to us something that's very significant, something that really helps us to be able to understand that we can listen to Jesus. What he's saying is, all of these prophecies, like this one and others, they're all pointing to me. In other words, fulfilled prophecy validates Jesus' authority. And not only does Jesus claim that I'm the you know, the one that was supposed to come. But Jesus proves it again and again and again. You know, when you go back to those first couple of verses, 14 and 15, and it talks about, you know, Jesus coming in the spirit of the, or in the power of the spirit. What's happening during those months is Jesus is demonstrating again and again and again the very thing that he's saying that's coming from the prophet Isaiah here. He, to proclaim freedom and release and healing, and demonstrate power, and power, and power. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. And just as the year of Jubilee initiated a new start, that's what Jesus is proclaiming to every single one of those people there. He both proclaims that release, and then he provides proof for that. So next week, as we continue this series, Lucas is going to be up here preaching for us, and he's going to, re he's going to share with us one of the most profound miracles and lessons that come from this gospel of Luke. But you know what? There are literally dozens and dozens of miracles that Jesus does again and again and again in front of a handful of people, in front of massive crowds, with eyewitness after eyewitness validating those miracles. In fact, think again as to what Luke says to us at the beginning of his gospel about why he wrote this gospel. Here's Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Luke says this, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And why does he do that? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke's saying, I carefully investigated this. I looked at the eyewitnesses. I put together the pieces for you, Theophilus, and for all of us, so that you may have certainty. In other words, validity, proof, so that you can know this is what is true, the things that you have been taught. And Jesus' fulfillment isn't just one prophecy, but dozens upon dozens of prophecies that came true in Jesus Christ. So why does fulfilled prophecy matter to you and to me? Why does it matter that Jesus says these words, today, this scripture has been fulfilling, fulfilled in your presence? It's because 
the ancient Jews were very careful to use prophecy as a measuring stick. In other words, if you were really to be a prophet, a prophet that spoke from God, if you claimed to be a prophet but your predictions didn't come true, you were basically run out of town. In some instances, stoned to death. In other words, if you couldn't say, this is really true, and then back it up, if you couldn't say, this is going to happen, then you were told not to listen. In fact, Moses set a very high bar for this. Deuteronomy 18.22. Moses said, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. See, Moses knew that fulfilled prophecy was evidence. It was evidence that this is God at work in the heart of a prophet, giving that prophet insight into something only God has the ability to know about. See, the telling of the future with 100% accuracy, that was the measuring stick for a prophet, 100% accurate, that can only come from God. And I love Isaiah writes these words which come from the mouth of God, Isaiah 46.10. God says this, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God says, I know the end from the beginning. I know everything that happens in the middle. My plans will happen because I know all of that. And so for Jesus to declare, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and then spend his entire ministry proving this truth, this is somebody that we need to listen to and we need to submit our lives to. And so we all have to kind of wrestle with this willingness to believe what it is that is put in front of us. You know, am I willing to follow Jesus? Do I have the faith to do that? Do I have enough evidence to do that? We, we have to come to grips with this part of evidence, which is called fulfilled prophecy. For any person to fulfill all of them, it would take their circumstances being divinely orchestrated. In fact, that is the claim of the Gospels. Over the course of this entire series of drive through history, we've mentioned ancient prophecies about a future Messiah that the Gospels say were fulfilled in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Remarkably, scholars count hundreds of these prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, over 300 in fact. Even more remarkable, these predictions were made by multiple authors over the course of about a thousand year time period. When the resurrected Jesus was eating fish with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, he reminded them of the things that had happened during his ministry. For the first time, Jesus opened their eyes to all the prophecies that had been fulfilled by him. He said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Luke 24, 44. Again, we're talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of over 300 prophecies without missing a single note. The odds of that happening by chance are zero. And so for any person to fulfill them all, 
it would take their circumstances being divinely orchestrated. In fact, that is the claim of the Gospels. Now, while many of the prophecies of the future Messiah were general in nature, some were very specific, like where the Messiah would be born and how he would die. The Messiah will be a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. He will be conceived by a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and taken to Egypt as a child. The Messiah will be heralded by the messenger of the Lord and anointed by the Holy Spirit to minister in Galilee, perform miracles, and preach good news. He will cleanse the temple, enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, be rejected by the Jewish people, and betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The Messiah will die a humiliating death involving rejection, mocking, beating, the piercing of his hands and feet, and the piercing of his side. He will be crucified with thieves, and his executioners will cast lots for his clothing. They will give him gall and vinegar to drink, but unlike the other victims, none of his bones will be broken. In the end, he will be buried in a rich man's tomb, but will rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. Fulfilled prophecy validates the authority of Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to that? Their response, I mean, honestly, you read that, it demonstrates such a lack of faith. I don't know, was Jesus too familiar to him, you know? Was he, because he grew up there? I don't know the real reason why, but sadly, Matthew's account of this particular story reveals something about the people there. Matthew 13, 58 and Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So what about you and I? What's, what's our response to this? How are we going to respond to Jesus? So I, I think for some, if you're a little bit like me and you've got to have proof, maybe you, know, you need to be honest with your hesitancy to be able to believe. It's okay. You know? God doesn't dismiss us because we have some doubts about some things. But what you need to do, though, is when you're able to be honest about some of your own doubts and hesitancy, do something about it. Like that video, there's a whole series, this drive-through history. I've got that listed in your notes there. Um, Sean McDowell is another great one. He's Josh McDowell's son. There's so many great resources. If you find yourself struggling because of evidence, there's so many ways to be able to discover that but maybe it's time for you to dig into that and to quit just using it as an excuse, right, to not believing or following Jesus Christ. But maybe the response for some of the others of us is that it's time for us to take Jesus out of our back pocket, right, and to put him on the throne of our life, to really submit and surrender to him all out. What he teaches, how he lives, what we do in our relationships in our life. I think for all of us, we need to be like Peter 
when Jesus asked Peter and all of the other disciples, will you also leave? And what does Peter say? John chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I know for me personally, those handful of times that I've struggled with something in regard to Scripture or teaching, every single time I have dug into that and really done the kind of work and research, I have come away with greater confidence in the truth and the validity of God's Word and what He says and teaches. So I challenge you to check out. If you're in the same boat you find, that I find myself in, spend time checking out so that you can have, as Luke declares at the beginning, you know, the certainty of what we have been taught. Why do we listen to Jesus? One reason is because of this fulfilled prophecy. It gives validation to the authority of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for every person that's here this morning and that's listening. And I know for whatever reason, there are some out there that have doubts and struggles. Or maybe it's past things that have happened to them, hurts even from the church. Maybe it's just the way they grew up, just they were taught again and again and again that there's nothing true to this Jesus thing. And so, Lord, to all those who have doubts, to all of us who struggle in this area, Lord, um, give us comfort, but Lord, give us the desire to dig in because, Lord, we know that you are the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And Lord, we turn to you. So Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be taught from your word, to, re, to see how important things like prophecy is, how it validates Jesus' authority. Lord, we love you. In your most precious name we pray, amen.